We're going to be in 1 John 4, 13 through 21. There was an outline uh, that was handed out. I don't know if there's any more back there. Uh, are there more outlines back there? Anyone? There are? Does anyone need one? Does anyone need one that didn't get one? I don't see any. Okay. Oh, over here. Maybe uh, one here and one here. I think that's... Just put your hand up when they come by. So, All right, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. Let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, uh, for your love. Thank you that your love is immense, it is vast, it is without uh, the ability to quantify or measure it. it expressed itself in the atonement. We thank you that you have been so kind to us in so many ways. We come before you knowing that we are guilty and sinful people. We ask for your forgiveness. We repent knowing that you are sufficient. We ask that you'd help us to understand the passage in front of us in Christ's name. Amen. So the book of 1 John, letter of 1 John, is, as hopefully we all know by now, largely uh, about assurance of faith. John has actually several goals in this. One of them is, we know, to increase our joy, uh, that he wants us to be joy-filled Christians. Uh, And one of the uh, big themes in this letter is the theme of assurance of faith. How do I know whether or not I am a Christian? How do I know whether I am a genuine Christian or not? And today's passage, I think, really represents the intersection of this question with uh, this deep doctrine and practical application kind of coming together in many ways. We might ask it this way, how can God's people live at peace in this world knowing that they've sinned against their Lord? How can we live at peace knowing that we've sinned? How can we live in peace and not in fear Uh, knowing where we stand. And this is a topic, of course, that uh, we all face and wrestle with. No doubt you have uh, heard the testimony of the individual who trusted Jesus at a very young age, uh, got to his or her teen years and doubted their salvation, then came to a very firm assurance. Perhaps that was you. Perhaps that is you right now. In any event, This topic is going to be revisited today, and John is going to deal with this not only theologically, but practically. And so we're going to use uh, the following outline. Uh, We're calling each of these tests of faith, but we have the Spirit's testimony, we have the confession of the Son, and the test of love. And you'll see in your outline that I've uh, split those up even further uh, in 16 through 21. We have this test of love, and then that's split up to the test of love, the effects of love, the source of love, and the evidence of love. And uh, I've tried to just underline maybe kind of the key statement in each of those sections. So hopefully that's helpful for you as we look at it. But let's look at 1 John 4, beginning in verse 13. We read this, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 
So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. As we begin, we see here that verse 13 provides us with a proof or a test of one's salvation. He says uh, in verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now again, you may recall 1 John about assurance of faith. We see in 1 John 5.13 this purpose is expressed to us where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Okay, he's writing, this is one of the purpose statements of, of this letter. He's saying, I'm writing this letter to you for the express purpose that you may know and be assured and confident of the faith that you have in Christ. He writes to increase their assurance. He does not want Christians who, you know, mope around like Eeyore all over the place. He wants Christians to actually be assured of their blessed state before the Lord and to be joyful because of it. Now, and just to be clear here and state this very clearly, assurance of faith, your confidence of your state, your status in the Lord, that assurance is not supposed to be elusive. It's not supposed to be something that you are chasing for your entire life, uncertain of and wavering all the time and just these big ups and big downs and all this stuff. We want stability in this, and I think that the Lord gives this to us. If you are someone here today who doubts your faith, the goal is that you would become assured of your faith and confident of your standing before the Lord. Sometimes our assurance is robbed because of bad theology. Uh, Essentially, any works-based religion uh, robs assurance from you. If your salvation is somehow contingent upon your performance, whatever that religious system is, if it's hinging upon your performance, you can ultimately never have assurance of your salvation. Uh, Sometimes our assurance is robbed because we have hard hearts and we don't always immediately run to repentance, okay? And so we fall into sin and then we don't go to repentance right away and then we say to ourselves, would a Christian really do this? And then we start to doubt and waver. Sometimes our assurance is robbed because we have an overly scrupulous conscience. Our conscience is this warning alarm that is going off all of the time. And we saw that a few weeks ago, how when our conscience or when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he's the one ultimately that we measure this by. In any event, the thrust of today's passage is to give us assurance of our faith And this first test in this verse here 
is regarding the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so look at that verse again, verse 13. We know, by this we know, that we abide in him because he's given us of his Spirit. Okay, he gives us the Holy Spirit, and this is the inward testimony of the Spirit. We see this elsewhere in Romans 8, 16. This is a very well-known verse on this topic. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit residing in us, bears witness, bears testimony with our own spirits that we are genuinely children of God. We also see this theme uh, explored in Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with what? The promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's almost like a down payment of sorts, the Holy Spirit residing in us. There's this internal testimony of the Spirit. We also see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, um, and it is God, uh, beginning uh, in verse 21, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Okay, so all these verses are saying essentially the same thing, that when a person is regenerated, is given new life, the new heart, that that person is given the Holy Spirit as this guarantee, as this internal witness and testimony. This test of assurance, of course, is very biblical based on all these passages. But I would encourage us and actually caution us not to turn this into something that's mystical or charismatic in that sense. We can go very quickly from uh, this is the testimony of the Holy Spirit to I feel like I'm saved, quote unquote. Uh, And I think this is a mistake. The internal testimony of the Spirit in verse 13 is not some subjective and mystical feeling because feelings and emotions can be deceptive. Remember that an experience or a feeling can be counterfeited, okay? Now, this does not mean that we are supposed to be like robots, okay? Feelings and emotions are good and are given by the Lord and are gifts, and we should enjoy them. Uh, They just can be counterfeited, so we need to be just aware of this. We're not supposed to be dismissive towards these things. We want good and godly feelings and emotions that come from our right standing before the Lord. After all, we read in 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Okay, we're to have good godly emotions from a pure heart for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not called again to be lifeless robots, but earnest, feeling, passionate, heart-beating Christians who love others from the heart and have good and true feelings. But back to the point at hand, what is exactly this internal testimony of the Spirit? Now, you may recall that we recently did a study uh, on assurance of faith with Joel Beakey, and uh, he discussed uh, how this internal testimony is a unique internal realization that you are a child of God. And he describes this, perhaps maybe you may think of the moment of your salvation where perhaps you cried or you felt this deep burden just lifted off of your shoulders. And he said that not every Christian will experience this. And and I 
I understand what he's saying. Um, I would be a little more inclined to say that the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit um, can be evaluated in my life as to whether or not I'm displaying the fruit of the Spirit. If If the Spirit resides in me, if the Spirit is inside of me, if the Holy Spirit has regenerated me, then it is going to be natural for me to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm going to read to you what Barnes says on this, and I think that he's correct. He says, if it is to be asked how this is done, the Spirit giving you internal testimony, I answer, it is not by any revelation of new truth, It is not by inspiration, it's not always by assurance, it is not by a mere persuasion that we are elected to eternal life, and again, these things can be counterfeited, but it is by producing in us the appropriate effects of his influence. So what are these effects? It is his to renew the heart, to sanctify the soul, to produce love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, of course from Galatians 5. If a man has these, he has evidence of the witnessing of the Spirit with his Spirit. If not, he has no such evidence. In other words, I know that the Spirit is at work and is testifying of his influence in my soul uh, by whether or not I'm displaying the fruits of his presence in my soul. And of course, we know that these are found in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Some of you maybe even have some kind of a sign uh, of these verses in your house somewhere, okay? Galatians 5, through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, you will notice something very important in Galatians 5, and that Paul does not say that love and joy and peace and etc. are characteristics that you drum up in, the strength, in your own strength to demonstrate. What does he call these characteristics? He calls it fruit. Okay? Meaning that if the Spirit is residing in you, he will produce these fruits. Fruit is something that just naturally comes because of the roots that are in there. And if the roots of the Holy Spirit are in you, then these fruits will be manifested in your life. And so I would suggest to us that the testimony of the Spirit being referred to here in 1 John 4.13 is the fruit of the Spirit. Do I have this in my life? This is another one of the evidences of salvation in 1 John, or tests of faith. For From this perspective then, we would agree with the Puritan Thomas Brooks, who calls the Holy Spirit the candle of the Lord. That is to say that the Holy Spirit is at work in our souls illuminating these things so that we will have evidence of them. But there are more tests to follow in 1 John. This first one is the internal testimony of the Spirit, giving testimony with our spirits. And the second one is, of course, as follows, and that is the confession of the Son. We read in verses 14 through 15, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now we've seen this test previously. Remember what we said John is doing? He's kind of just like going in circles. Okay, And just when we think we're done with 
hearing of the test of faith, of, of confession of the Son, he comes back to it again because he just keeps coming back and around on these topics over and over and over again, probably to get them through our thick skulls. But this is, has to do with who are you confessing? What are you believing? Now, you may recall that the false teachers in this day were saying that Jesus only appeared to take on flesh and he only appeared to die on the cross. And this confession strikes against that. Remember, John is writing into a specific occasion at a specific time, at a specific place, and he's addressing the spirit of his age, the zeitgeist, so to speak. What is going on in his day and age? And in his day and age, people were denying the Son in this way. And so one must acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, One must acknowledge, as the passage says, that he is the Savior of the world. Furthermore, he says, we have seen him, which again is these little hints that you see all throughout 1 John to indicate that Jesus is actually physical flesh. He, He became physical flesh. We've seen him, referring to our senses. The evidence here that one is a genuine Christian is that you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You remember what the word confess means? We saw this a few weeks ago. Anyone remember what the word confess means? To say the same thing. Yes, that's right. To say the same thing. Okay? So when one confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, one is saying the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus. When one confesses one's sins, one agrees and says the same thing about your sins that God says about them. Okay? So confessing your sin is not, well, I happen to just make a little bit of a mistake here. Confessing is, I agree with you, God, that I have committed a high-handed offense against your nature, against your character, against your throne, against your lordship. And I agree with you that I deserve condemnation for this sin. And I repent, and I would ask that you would forgive me for this sin. It's saying the same thing, not skirting around, not saying it in a way that I would agree with, but God would disagree with. By the way, um, when you're dealing with personal conflicts, as a side note here, It's very important to get to this point to where you can actually agree with the definition of what you've done against this other person. Um, You're trying to resolve sin, trying to resolve a conflict, and you have to get to that before you can ask for forgiveness because otherwise you're talking about two different things. So confession is saying the same thing. It's agreement. This is this agreement, this confession, this saying the same thing about Christ is no mere rote statement that you just parrot as if it were a magic incantation. Okay, Jesus is the Son of God. And you just say this. The the, the words are verbalized out of your mouth. Romans 10 says this, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This confession that comes out of the mouth is something that is sourced in the heart, meaning that I genuinely believe this confession that I'm giving. I'm not just saying this to satisfy a parent. I'm not just saying this to satisfy a pastor. I'm not just saying this to satisfy a person, but I actually do believe genuinely in my heart and soul that Christ is who he says that he is. 
Of course, we know James chapter 2, even the demons believe and shudder. There is a brand of belief, not genuine belief, but a brand of intellectual assent that acknowledges certain truths to be that way. And we are warned not to be that, but to really have our beliefs come from our heart. Confessions about Christ must be genuine and from the heart. They too can be counterfeited. At the same time, though, as the text indicates, one cannot be regenerated without it. You cannot be a true Christian and deny Christ. And that's what we're getting at here in this particular passage. Let me just remind us of this caveat. Just because a confession can be counterfeited does not mean that it must be discarded. Okay? We live in a day and age where people are saying, well, that can be counterfeited, so we should just get rid of it. No, we want the true form of the thing. Um, this is very popular today when it comes to husband-wife relationships. Well, uh, a husband can be abusive or counterfeit, so we should just get rid of this whole structure of authority. No, just because something can be abused or something can be counterfeited or something can be uh, exercised in a wrong way does not mean that the true thing in and of itself is wrong. We want to strive for going after the true thing. And that's what we would say here. We must confess. Just because people can falsely confess Christ does not mean that we discard that as part of our Christianity. This brings us to the third and final test in today's passage. And this test is elaborated on somewhat at length um, in these verses. This is uh, 16 through 21, the test of love. So we've seen the first test of faith in our passage today is the Spirit's testimony. Is the Spirit giving testimony in your own soul that you are a believer in Christ? And that is done through the fruit of the Spirit. The second test of faith in the passage today is the confession of the Son. Are you confessing Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as God himself? Come in the flesh. And the third test of faith is love. Do you have love? And we've seen all of these before, but again, John is repeating these again and again. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected within us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, you can see that on the outline in front of you, I've divided up this portion of the text into four more points. Um, We have the test of love, the effects of love, the source of love, and the evidence of love. Now, the test is pretty straightforward. It's given to us in verse 16. We've come to know and believe that the love love God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Okay, so the test is simple. Uh, because you have seen and you know God's love for you, therefore you reciprocate that love. 
Do you have that? Do you have that in your heart? Do you, having looked at the cross and the atonement and seen what God has done for you, do you then go and reciprocate that love to others? Or are you completely a selfish animal living only for yourself? Okay, That's the test. God is love. Therefore, whoever loves abides in God and God abides in him. If you do not love, then you don't abide in God. That's the test. Do you love? Now, what is helpful for us as creatures is that in this passage, God has also given to us the effects of that love. So you're saying, well, do I have this love present in my soul? Okay, fine, but is it there? And so he's given to us the effects. You want to know if this is in you? Then you're going to see these effects working themselves out in you. And that is in verses 17 through 18. By this is love perfected so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Okay? Discernible effect of love in your life, number one. Confidence in the day of judgment. Okay? If God's love is at work in you, then you will have confidence in the day of judgment. This one is significant. It's all significant. What am I saying? This means that Christians are not afraid of the upcoming day of judgment. Like you look to the judgment coming ahead, you know that God is going to judge the whole world, and you can say with confidence that I am ready for that day. Why? How is it possible to have This shouldn't be possible. I mean, you, you look at the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, and there should be an absolute terror that just sits on top of us. But how can the Christian walk into this with confidence? His robes for mine. I know that I'm not going to be judged based on my own works. That's how I have. You see where it's, it's where is the confidence located? If the confidence is in self, I'm trembling at the day of judgment. If the confidence is in Christ, God's not going to cast Christ out of his presence, so he's not going to cast me out of his presence. And I have confidence. Again, it has to do with the source. We've been looking at this at the 9 a.m. service. Confidence in the word. Confidence in Christ. Confidence in God. Confidence in the gospel. Where is the source of your confidence? Where is it located? Or actually, I should say, what's the object of your confidence? Say it that way. Who are you trusting in? I uh, recently uh, attended a, a Roman Catholic funeral where the priest said something to the effect of um, that this deceased person was likely in purgatory at this moment. And it caught me a little bit off guard because I'm normally used to, if I attend a Roman Catholic funeral, I'm, I'm normally used to something like this. If anyone is in heaven right now, it is this person, right? And it's, it's some kind of 
they were such a good, caring person, and they were loving, and they were kind, and, and, and God would never turn this person out of his presence. That's normally what I kind of hear, but I was a little bit caught off guard because it may be the first time that I was at a funeral where he said that, that this person was probably in purgatory uh, at that uh, moment, cause, and that's not too hopeful. But And, I, and I, I talked to a Catholic friend of mine, and he said, actually, he said, they're, they're, from his uh, experience, he said, there's actually uh, a bit of a resurgence or a return in the Catholic world to that doctrine of purgatory, and he viewed it as a good thing. I mean, we believe in purgatory as Catholics, and so, uh, therefore, we ought to not be ashamed to talk about it at a funeral if someone is in purgatory kind of a thing. And, he, and he's saying this is a, a good thing, okay? Um, the, the point that I want to, 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 to make with this is that with that kind of theology, there is no confidence in the day of judgment. Do you see how that one doctrine alone is diametrically opposed to the... Con Everything in 1 John has been funneling us to the fact that you can have confidence and assurance and joy and security in your state before God. And everything about that theology dismantles that. And says, we don't know. It's uncertain. You're probably in purgatory, suffering for who knows how many years before you can burn off the rest of your sin. True Christianity offers confidence and assurance that you will stand before the Lord righteous. There's assurance here. It is my goal and heart that every single Christian here comes to, if you're not already there, that confident rest in Christ, knowing that I am in Christ and I have assurance that I can stand before him in the day of judgment with confidence. There's not all this jumping all over the place, wavering up, wavering down, maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm lost. You, you, you can't, that, that life is not sustainable. So, and some of you know this from practical experience that you've lived in this, maybe at a certain season in your life, maybe now. That's not sustainable. Every moment is just this uncertainty. And there are certain religions of this world that cultivate that lack of assurance. And what I'm saying is that Scripture teaches that, that we can have confident assurance before God because of Christ's. Why is this the case? Because of what this next line says. As he is, so also are we in this world. You see that little statement there? As he is, so also are we in this world. This is in verse 18. Okay. This is an important statement. Um, and I want to explain this to you. Uh, with what MacArthur says here. This stunning statement, as he is, so also are we in the world, means that the Father treats the saints the same way he does his Son, Jesus Christ. 
God clothes believers with the righteousness of Christ and grants the Son's perfect love and obedience. Someday, believers will stand before God's throne as confidently as their Lord and Savior does. That's how you have confidence in the day of judgment. Knowing that because you have, you were, uh, have union with Christ, you are one with him, that God will treat you the same way that he treats Christ. Barnes says it this way. He says, that is, we have the same traits of character which a Savior had, and resembling him, we need not be alarmed at the prospect of meeting him. We sing the song, His Robes for Mine. And the idea here is that when we believe on Jesus Christ, he puts his righteous robes on us, and now we are treated like Christ. We are part of his royal family at that moment. I understand that many times we can understand the atonement theologically on paper, but many times... We don't understand it practically. I am telling you that there is rest, full, satisfying rest in Jesus Christ. Not a wavering, not an uncertainty, not a, I'm on his good side today and I'm on his bad side now. There is full rest in Jesus Christ and confidence in the day of judgment. You don't have to fear that day. Of, you have to fear it if you're trusting in yourself and you're not trusting in Christ. You better be quaking in your boots right now. But if you're in Christ, then there's full confidence. We understand maybe theologically that Christ, and we even may use fancy terminology, he imputes his righteousness to the believer. But sometimes we still act as if his disposition toward us is on a trial basis only. We'll see how this works out with him. If you are in Jesus Christ, then the likelihood of God casting you out of his presence on the day of judgment is the same as the likelihood of him casting out Jesus Christ from his presence. We are one with Christ. This has implications. That actually means something. Besides just these ideas floating around out there, we are one with him and we will not be cast out of his presence because we are in Christ. There's a 0% chance that God would do this. And because of this, there is a second and closely related implication. The first implication, of course, that we have confidence in the day of judgment. The next one here, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The second implication of love is that you will not have fear. The Christian lives a life with a free conscience and with freedom from punishment. You may remember, again, uh, sorry to keep going back to this, but uh, Roman Catholic Cardinal, I quoted as saying this, a very bad statement, but he said, the principal heresy of Protestants, talking about us, is that the saints may obtain a certain assurance of their gracious and pardoned state before God. In other words, he's saying, as a Roman Catholic cardinal, he's saying, the principal heresy of you Protestants is that you teach you can have assurance of your faith. Now, this is bad theology. This is not just one individual. 
But this brand of theology, Catholic theology, teaches that you cannot have assurance of your faith. Therefore, one is kept perpetually in fear. You are kept in fear perpetually with no certainty of this, no certainty of where you stand. Um, I recently uh, recall or I, or having a conversation recently with um, a relative who is Catholic, and my heart breaks for this individual because this individual said to me, John, I just hope that one day I'll be worthy to stand before God. It's right here in the gospel. You're not worthy, but he makes you worthy. And if you're saying, I hope I'm worthy, I, maybe one day, I, you have no confidence. You see how this passage is pointing us to the fact that Christians are supposed to live in rest and in assurance and in confidence and in love, and not in fear, and not in uncertainty. Your conscience can have rest in Christ. Verse 18 is glorious. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There's nothing to fear in Christ. Fear has to do with punishment, and we don't fear that because we're secure in Christ. Feel the freedom to live out your life, O oh Christian, with joy and happiness. Feel the wind in your hair. <laughs> See the green in the grass. Smile at the laughter of children. My personal favorite, smell that roast in the oven. It's just... That's right. That's right. I get one of you. You see, when you're weighed down with uncertainty and nagging doubt in your mind about whether you've done enough, everything becomes dull and pale and numb. We can actually have joy in this life. I understand. I, 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 I get it. I, it's not going to be perfect until we get to heaven. I realize that. And we're going to face trials, and we're going to face persecution, and we're going to face difficult times. And I understand this. And we've talked about this many, many, many times before. But even in that, there is joy. Even in that, there is the satisfaction and the joy knowing that my Heavenly Father knows what is best for me, and He is going to change me and grow me to be more like Jesus Christ through this trial. Okay? We don't have to live this drum, dull, lack of assurance life. When you have that certainty in your soul that you are Christ and he is yours and you are free to enjoy his many gifts and benefits, perfect love casts out fear. You, you remember what Paul said in, in 1 Timothy. Everything is to be enjoyed if you receive it with thanksgiving. Everything that he's created. All of this is a gift from God. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. God took the initiative... This is paradigm shifting. Unregenerate man is unable to set his love and affection on the Lord. Okay? If you are without Christ and you are unregenerated, you cannot set your love on God. Okay? You cannot drum up this inside of you. 
We love because he first loved us. Love for God is repulsive to the unregenerate soul. We are dead in our sins. We are at enmity with God. We require God to set his love on us first. Then we can set our love on him. It all starts with the fountainhead, the source, the wellspring of life, God the Father. And when he sets his love on us, then we can do likewise in return. God is the spring, and we are the stream. Whatever good is in us is there because it was first in God. Without God as the spring, we could have no life or love in ourselves. Augustine said, what, whatsoever is good in the world or lovely is either God or from God. It is either Christ or from Christ. He begins it. The evidence of this work in my life is clear. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. How do you know that this love has been wrought in your soul? Because you love your brother. That's pretty simple. How do I know? Have I drummed up enough affections to love God? Is this, I can't discern. Okay, here's something really simple. You can't see God, and so you're struggling to say, I don't know. How about starting with, do you love your brother who you can see? That's what he's simply saying. Do you demonstrate love for the one that you can see? Essentially, the gist is this. You cannot love God and hate his people. You cannot love Jesus and hate his bride. This, by the way, is a very popular one today. Incredibly popular. Okay? It is incredibly popular for people to say, oh, I'm spiritual, you know, but I'm not religious. I, I talk to God, and I have a relationship with God, but I just don't go to church because all the people are... If you don't love the bride of Christ, you don't love Christ. That's the end of the story. I, I don't know what else I can tell you. Um, that's what it says here. Mark and avoid the person who does this because he's demonstrating that he's not a Christian. If you love God, you love his people. If you love Jesus, you love his bride. You cannot divorce yourself from God's people. God doesn't, so why do you? Why? We're kind of like a family here, okay? And yes, I understand. Sometimes we can be a little cantankerous at times. And sometimes there's a crazy uncle or two thrown in the mix, okay? But hey, you know... If God could set his love on someone, we must do the same. We do it because of the work that God has done in us. He closes verse 21, which is essentially verse 20 restated, but this time as a command. He said as an evidence, you're going to do this. And now he says, okay, just do it. (laughs) Just love your brother. This passage thus gives to us three tests of assurance. The testimony of the Holy Spirit, do you see the evidence of this in your life? The confession of the Son, are you confessing that Jesus Christ is who he says that he is? You believe in him, trusting in him. And then the test of love. These tests, by the way, are not designed to be millstones hung around your neck. Okay? We saw this again a few weeks ago, and I keep referring back to this 
portion of text because that text, I think, was written for the person who interprets these tests as millstones around your neck, okay? And that is, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart, okay? These passages are not designed to be millstones in the sense that it drives you into perpetual doubt. These tests are designed to bring you to confident assurance of your state before the Lord. They are designed to increase your joy, not decrease it. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Do you believe in Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord? Do you love your brother? Like the Father in Mark 9, we may find ourselves in each of these tests crying out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I, I love, but help my lack of love. Lord, I, I, I'm seeing some of these tests or these, these fruits of the Spirit, but help me in the areas that I lack. Lord, I, I confess you as Lord, but help me in my weakness in this area. We may waver. We may doubt. But here's what I want to say. I just tune in here. Tune in at the rest of it too, but tune in here, okay? If we see these evidences in our lives, even if they are weak, it should give us confidence that we belong to Christ, we are his and he is mine. Are they there? If you're honest with yourself, every last one of you is going to say they're weak. Okay? But are they there? And if they're there, if you see the effects in your life, then you have confidence in the Lord. That's the point of all of this. Not to drive us away, but to drive us further in, closer to the Lord. And so I just have four points of application. Number one, increase your assurance by evaluating your life for the fruit of the Spirit. Again, is it there? It's not going to be perfect. John already told us it wouldn't be perfect, all the way back in 1 John 1. Okay? But is it there? Is there something there to indicate life? Two, increase your assurance by looking to your confession of faith in Christ. Are you confessing Christ as Lord? You trust in him. Yes, of course, we're going to doubt. But is it there? Three, increase your assurance by evaluating your life for the love for the brethren. I understand it's going to be weak. Is it there? You love the brethren. And four, pray that God would increase your assurance using these tests of assurance. Pray, okay? I would suggest to us that one of the, the foremost means of grace as we look to this area is prayer. I'm doubting, God, help my unbelief. Pray that the Lord would cultivate a deep assurance in your own soul. And seek out other brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't have to walk through this alone. We can walk through this side by side with one another. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the love displayed in the gospel. And I pray that you'd help increase our confidence and our assurance um, because of what you've done in us. We can love because you first loved us. And so we thank you for this. Thank you for these gifts.
Help us to have this rest and this assurance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.